Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome and thank you for joining me. Today is June the 15th of 2016. Wednesday. Wednesday morning. So, uh, happy middle of the week uh, to you. Uh, hump day, as we used to call it, or still do. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this day, and I just thank you, dear Lord, for everything that you just continue to do in my life. And Lord, oh, what can I say? Lord, you know, without you in my life, I do not know where I would be. You managed to make the clouds have a silver lining you make the sun shine and the rain fall and you just continue to walk with me even when I'm down and out dear Lord you let me know that I'm special in your eyes and that is so special to know that and Lord I just pray that you just bless these words dear Lord and even increase my faith in you Heavenly Father as this reading comes and Lord I just pray that these falls upon the ears of those that need to hear this and that um, you will plant seeds that they will become to know you and Lord for those that do know you let this be an enlightening and a uh, place to go up further in you and I just give you all the praise in your son Jesus name Amen okay so we are doing guideposts know the words of Jesus in 30 days by J. Stephen Lang and today, we're going over you of little faith, signs and skeptics. At the heart of it today, as part of his mission to usher in the kingdom of God, Jesus performed miracles over the powers of nature. In so doing, he invoked faith in many people, but hostility and skepticism in others. In our memory verses, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And that's Mark chapter 4, verse 40. And a key term for today is signs. John's Gospel uses the word signs to refer to Jesus' miracles, for they are signs, pointers, to a higher reality. A miracle is not done for, pure, for purely material reasons but to elicit faith, to draw men nearer to God. Only the eye of the faith sees miracles for what they are, and Jesus' enemies refuse to see the power of God at work. In our previous chapter, we looked at some sayings of Jesus in the context of his healing the sick and demon-possessed. Today, we look at other types of miracles, one involving power over death, the others involving power over forces of nature. We will also look at, at the nature of faith and how it relates to Jesus' miracles. Conquering Death One of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came 
there, seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher any more? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid. Just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion, with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talita Kolma, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. She was twelve years old. And this, they were completely astonished. And that's Mark chapter 5, verse 22 through 24 and 35 uh, through 52. As we saw in the last chapter, Jesus on many occasions healed society outcasts, crippled, beggars, lepers, and demon-possessed. Here a miracle takes place among the respectable. Jairus is a ruler in the local synagogue. The ruler of the synagogue was elected by its elders and was in charge of caring for the building and administrating the services. Though he's not a preacher or a minister, as we think of them, despite his position, he treats Jesus as his superior. One of the few cases in the gospel where any Jewish official showed such a difference. Jairus is the leader of the local synagogue, thus an established figure, not one of the sinners, such as the tax collectors that Jesus had been criticized for hobnobbing with. The Greek word for daughter is Fugater, T-H-U-G-A-T-E-R. But Jairus uses the diminutive Thagarian, little daughter. The girl was twelve, at which time a girl was considered of age. The tragedy of the story is not that just that a beloved child has died, but that the child was on the verge of womanhood. Luke's Gospel adds the detail that the girl was the man's only child. And Jesus' hopeful words, don't be afraid, just believe, contrast with the mourners in the atmosphere of mourning. He excluded hope and sincerity. On entering the death chamber, the first thing Jesus did was to send out the mourners. Since the cause for mourning was about to end, Jewish custom dictated immediate and loud lamentation over the dead. There were, and still are, professional wailing women in the Middle East who are hired to keep up a lamentation in the house of a bereaved, especially when 
any new visitors arrived. Silly as it sounds to us, one purpose they served was to create an atmosphere in which people were not hesitant to release their own grief. Even the poorest person was expected to hire at least one whaler when he had a death in his family. The Jews shared the Greek, Romans, and Phoenicians the use of the flute players as part of the mourning. The home Jesus entered with the woman wailing and the shrill flutes playing would have been nothing like the home of a bereaved family in our own culture. We can understand why Jesus would have put the noisemakers out of the room, although in his lifetime he was certainly at ease in such situations. But in this particular home the wailers and flutists were not appropriate, nor needed any longer. The child's not dead, but asleep. Death could sometimes be referred to as sleep, as when Jesus spoke of his friend Lazarus falling asleep. But here Jesus makes it clear the girl is not dead. It is tempting to read too much into this, to say that Jesus knew the child was only in a coma and could be awakened from it. This is possible, and the child might in fact have died as was reported to Jairus. But Jesus was assuring them that death had no hold on her, that he would awaken her just as if she had fallen asleep. For the believer, death is indeed like sleep. It is not a permanent state. That is the key idea in what Jesus says about the little girl. Her death, like the death of every person of faith, is only temporary transitional in time. We will awaken from it. The laughter Jesus provokes by his announcement that the child is only asleep is not the laughter of humor, but mocking, bitter laughter. Perhaps they even wondered if he was making light of someone just dying. Jesus' words to the child can be translated, get up or arise, but also wake up. This is one of the few places in the Bible where we have the actual words Jesus spoke. In his Native American, Talitakum, little girl get up, the little girl got up, which is the same Greek verb used in other places to refer to Jesus' resurrection. The people who saw that the child was restored to life were completely astonished. The great Hebrew prophets, Elijah and Elijah, both resorted dead children to life, restored dead children to life. And that's first King seventeen seventeen twenty four and second King chapter four eighteen through thirty seven. Someone great was walking the roads of Galilee. The first sign on the third day a wedding took place in Canaan in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine, dear woman. Why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from twenty to thirty gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to their brim. Then he told them, 
Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have already drank too much. But you have saved the best till now. This is the first of his miraculous signs. Jesus performed in Canaan of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. And that's John chapter 2 verse 1 through 11. The miracle of turning water into wine was, according to John's Gospel, the first of Jesus' miracles. The story is familiar, yet there is so much about it that is mysterious. It tells us a great deal about the mission of Jesus and also about his relationship with his family. Jesus addresses his mother as woman, something unheard of among the Jews. This was not rudeness or courtness on his part. Jesus was accenting his independence and manhood. He is now doing the will of the Father and is no longer subject to human authority. He was a good and obedient son in all ways, but now that he is about his Father's business, the words he spoke in the temple when he was 12 years old, he is no longer subject to our authority. Yet later in the story, he honors her request anyway. The Canaan incident was in no sense Jesus taking leave of his mother and home life. Mary would have much to puzzle over in 30 years, wondering why nothing out of the ordinary had occurred in Jesus' life. And at Canaan, seeing Jesus accompanied by his new followers, she may have expected something momentous to occur. Mary evidently had some position of authority at this wedding in light of how she addresses the servants. Jesus words to her, Why do you involve me? have puzzled many readers, but the general meaning is probably, Let me do things in my own way. My time has not yet come. A cultural insight here, Jesus and alcohol. Christians who abstain from alcohol have often tried to insist that total abstinence was the practice of Jesus and the disciples. Obviously, the miracle at Canaan poses a bit of a problem. After all, would Jesus have turned water into wine if he thought it was wrong to drink it? Add to that that the fact that no one at the wedding in those days would have drunk anything except wine. So we must assume Jesus himself drank. Obviously, the same holds true for the Last Supper. In the past, some teetotalers came up with the two-wine theory, claiming that some of the biblical words translated wine and the fact referred to a non-fermented grape juice. It is an interesting idea, but not a true one. In ancient times, with no refrigerator, grape juice had a way of turning into wine rather quickly. And when the Bible says wine, it really does refer to alcoholic wine. The Bible does have some harsh words to say about drunkenness, notably in Proverbs. But then again, Proverbs also advise, give strong drink to him that is ready to perish, and wine to those 
that are heavy-hearted. And that's 31 chapter and verse 6 and 7 of Proverbs. And the age before pain relievers and anesthetics, alcoholic beverages really did have a medicinal value. Wine was also the only real disinfectant available for cleansing wounds, as we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan. It is worth noting, however, that people in ancient times, not only Jews, but the Greeks and Romans as well, generally drank their wine diluted with water, so ordinary table wine was about half the strength of wines today. Even the pleasure-loving Romans mocked heavy drinkers who insisted on having their wine undiluted. Some think it refers to his time of suffering on the cross, and this, this is just a, that was the cultural reading, and he says, my time has not yet come, has also puzzled readers, and some think it refers to his time of suffering on the cross. More likely, the meaning is that Jesus alone will know when it is time to begin doing miracles as he arrived. As we will see later in this chapter, Jesus never did miracles on demand. He and his father have their own sense of timing. The water in the stone jars is mentioned as being for the Jewish rites of purification. One meaning of the miracle is that the water represents the old covenant, the Jewish law, and its many regulations, while the wine represents the new covenant, the gospel. The ceremonial cleansing water was nothing compared with the wine of the new age. The Jewish teachers of Jesus' day often spoke of the law of Moses as water, and the sense of purifying, quenching thirst, and promoting life and health. But of course, the wine is better. The master of the banquet would have been friend of the bridegroom or groom's family, holding the honorary position of master of the festivities. Here he seems surprised. The best wine has been saved for so late in the festivities. The time when the guests, perhaps mildly, mildly intoxicated at this point, would expect the inferior wine to be brought out. This is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Canaan of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Signs. The Greek word is S-E-M-E-I-A, Sima, or important in John as pointers to a higher reality. A miracle is not done for purely material reasons, although the wedding guests no doubt enjoyed the wine. But to elicit faith to draw men nearer to God, turning water into wine is not done to puzzle people with an act of magic, but to make them see the divine glory of the man who performed it. The guests at the wedding may not see the significance of the miracle, but Jesus' disciples do, and at this point they put their faith in him. The Heavenly Picnic Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up into the mountains and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, 
Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. And another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about five thousand of them. And Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain beside him by himself. And that's John chapter 6, verse 1 through 15. Did you know that the miracle of feeding the 5,000 was a common subject in the earliest Christian art, which is found in the Roman catacombs, and also at Tabitha in Israel, visitors can see the church of the multiplication, supposedly the site of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. The miracle of feeding the 5,000 must have made a deep impression on the first believers, for it was one of the few miracles that is recorded in all four Gospels. To understand why it had such an influence, we need to recall that the Jews of Jesus' day expected the Messiah to spread a great banquet for all of Israel to partake of. They also expected that there would be again manna, the bread from heaven that God supplied to the Israelites as they crossed the wilderness after leaving Egypt. In a sense, this miracle is both a kind of preview of the Masonic banquet, banquet and also a giving of bread from heaven. The fact that so many people followed Jesus such a distance on foot tells us there was already a deep spiritual hunger. Jesus had withdrawn for a time after he heard of the death of John the Baptist. He wanted to be alone, but the crowds would not let him. And instead of rejecting them, he fed them. People with spiritual hunger are not a nuisance or an encumbersome, but an opportunity. Jesus' reaction to the people's hunger is feed them. The disciples doubt their ability to do so. In fact, when Jesus says to his disciple Philip, Where shall we buy bread? He is tested of the disciples, and Philip says it simply can't be done. But another disciple, Andrew, mentions the boy with the loaves and fishes. This is one of the few miracles in which the disciples themselves are involved. Jesus performed the miracle, but the disciples gave the food to the people. The bread at the feeding of the five thousand was barley bread, and the bread of the poor considered to be food for animals and not people. The loaves were not what we would consider full loaves of bread, but more like rolls 
the fish O P S A R I O N Osprin was a small fish of the lake, roughly equivalent to a sardine. The baskets were the common wickerwork baskets of the poor. The Messiah's banquet was not lavish or sumptuous, yet it fed the hungry crowd and displayed the power of God. The people received as much as they wanted, and there were even leftovers. The miracle is not exhausted, for others can be fed. God will continue to provide for his people. There were five loaves with twelve baskets of leftovers. Coincidence, perhaps, yet curious, that five, for Jesus brought to mind the Pentarah and twelve the tribes of Israel. One obvious lesson for this episode is that little goes further with God than we might expect. The miracle is an acted version of the mustard seed parable. Jesus gives thanks before the bread, before he breaks the bread. He is thanking God for five loaves and two fishes to feed 5,000 people. And assuming he is a prophet, the people connect with him. Moses and the supply of manna in the wilderness, and also the prophet Elisha, who multiplied bread for a hundred men. And that's Second Kings verse forty or verse four, forty two and forty four. In both cases there were leftovers. The great prophet John the Baptist was dead, and the people were hungry for another prophet to follow. The people's hunger, both physical and spiritual, is understandable. It's no surprise that the people impressed by the miracle want to make Jesus king. They are, as Jesus understood, sheep without a shepherd, but also an army without a captain. And so he withdraws from them. He was at the peak of his popularity, yet in spite of his provision of food for a huge crowd, he knew he was not the type of Messiah the people expected. Now we'll go over this character close-up here, Elisa, which is L the E-L-I-S-H-A in the New Testament. One of the greatest of the Old Testament prophets was Elisa, the protege and successor of Elijah. The story of Elisa, watching his master being carried to heaven in a chariot of fire, is told in Second Kings 2. And in later chapters of Second Kings, we see that Elisa worked even more miracles than Elijah had. Elisa is mentioned only once in the New Testament in Jesus' address in the synagogue of his hometown of Nazareth. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. There were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisa, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed. Only Naaman, the Sincerian, and that's Luke chapter 4, verse 24 and 27, or through 27. Jesus saw a pattern in Israel's history. God's prophets were often rejected, and so God saw fit to bestow his blessing on those outside Israel. Although this is one time Elisha has mentioned the name 
in the New Testament, several of his miracles were replicated in the ministry of Jesus. In a sense, the career of the miracle work in Eliza was a preview of a greater career, career of Jesus. All right, and uh, then I have some uh, verses here uh, like I could share with you. Um, I probably will do that uh, in the next uh, since that uh, the next in the next setting. Uh, I I just want to thank you if uh, if you're here listening to this program. I want to thank you. I want to thank you. But uh, I want you to know that uh, you know. Is more important is to have faith in God. And that's what we're reading. You have little faith. We have to have faith in God. Faith in God. Faith in Jesus, his son, who died upon a cross, who was risen on the third day, that we may have life everlasting it's a beautiful uh, I mean uh, forgive me here but uh, you know the story itself and when it's, and once it becomes not just a story but a part of your life you know you, you have a deeper understanding of what all this means and if you don't I, I ask and I, I plead with you you know find out because he's calling if he hasn't called you already he's calling you now He's telling you, come home, come home, accept me. And in me, you'll have a life that is that is spectacular. Now, I've gone through my ups and downs, ins and outs, uh, you know, and I, I, sinner that I was, you know, I'm not perfect. I, you know, I still commit sin, but I, I don't do it on a regular basis or go out to commit sin. You know, I make mistakes, but I'm quickly know that when I make a mistake I can be forgiven if I ask and truly and humbly repent of what I do or have done and I do Heavenly Father thank you bless the reading bless the years in Jesus name Amen With the Lucky Land Slots you can get lucky just about anywhere This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.